the terrible mistake of reducing the cross to a singular meaning. We know who God is because he's perfectly revealed in Jesus. Crucifixion had been banned in the Roman Empire in the fourth century. Movement of faith is because somehow it must have had power and was changing people's lives. Death swallowed Jesus and thought that it had prevailed, but no, death is now destroyed from the inside out. Hallelujah. Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast. My name is Tim. I am your host. And today I am absolutely delighted to be joined by a frequent guest, Brian Zond. Uh, Brian is lead pastor of uh, Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. He's uh, also a prolific author. He's written a whole bunch of stuff, including a brand new book that we're going to talk about today. It's just come out called The Wood Between the Worlds. Brian, welcome to the show again. Thank you, Tim. Always good to be with you. Now, I'm going to ask you to do me a favor because I, I this book is so new. It's still in the mail for me. It's on its way. I've read I've read it because I, I couldn't put it. I was going to say I couldn't put it down, except it was on my screen. I had to read the PDF on my computer. But um, could you hold up this book? Because it, it looks real nice. <laughs> it really does. Um, I don't know. I don't know if you can. I don't know if this does justice to it. If you can get the right, the light, the oh, look at that. right. Uh, wow. But who did that it, art for you? Well, IVP. Let's see here, because I should. I I've never met the guy. It's it's going to be here somewhere. It's going to be cover design. David Facet. At IVP. Now, I had, of course, I'd seen, you know, mock ups and they'd sent me pictures and that sort of thing. I had no idea when the, and it's just been, it's been less than two weeks that I finally got uh, a real copy and I opened up that box and man, man. I mean, everybody, everybody says that. I mean, literally everybody that gets one, they go, wow, this cover. It's a work of art. So, I'm hoping that in this case, you can judge the book by its cover. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's what <great>. I'm hoping. <laughs> I love it. Brian, we're going to, as you know, we love to just explore rabbit trails. So we're just going to go wherever we go. I, I can't remember a podcast in which I've started with as many questions and notes as I have here. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> I don't know where we're going to go, but it's going to be a lot of fun. It's all good. I just, Uh, that's the way I approach podcasts is it's just (laughs) hanging out and having a conversation. Indeed. Yeah. Um, You taught me a new word in this book and I, I, I think it's, uh, helps to understand perhaps some of the why behind, uh, your book here, but it was theopoetics. What is theopoetics? Uh, how many, uh, points will I get in Scrabble if I use it? I I don't know. You have to figure (laughs) that out, but it would be a good one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you get a lot of style points for sure. Absolutely. But, uh, theopoetics is the attempt to speak of God theologically, not so much in the precise language of prose, but in the more elevated language of poetry. Uh, poetry may be less precise, but it's more, it's less limiting. So if you're reading, you know, instructions how, on how to uh, assemble a, I don't know, a vacuum cleaner, uh, you don't want it in poetry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you want that in prose, technical Indeed. language. Yeah. But sometimes, as we are engaging in conversation about the ultimate transcendence that is the living God, we run to the end mm. of the technical language of 
pros, and then what we have left to try in an attempt to speak of the ineffable is the language of poetry. And this is not some sort of newfangled thing. In fact, this is ancient. It's why so much of the Bible is poetry. And in fact, more of the Bible is poetry than people think. Mm. Um, because we're, we don't live in a poetic age. We live in a prose age, or as Walter Brueggemann says it, we live in a prose flattened age. But of course, everyone knows that the Psalms are poetry. They know that. Uh, they may know, they should know, it'd be good if they know that the literary prophets are all poetry. I mean, you know, I'm talking about Isaiah, Jeremiah, all that. That's poetry is what that is. Uh, you People know that, but there's actually, there's more in there than what you think. The first two chapters of Genesis are basically a poetic structure, a lot of, and then you get into the New Testament, um, you know, I think of the poetic prologue to the Gospel of John, the first 18 verses. And on and on we can go. I mean, even Paul, um, the best of Paul is poetic. Yeah, I think I say it in the book, when Paul isn't forced to do the nitty-gritty pastoral work of telling people to stop getting drunk at the Lord's Supper and stop <laughs> suing one another, he can actually be very poetic. And we think of 1 Corinthians 13. Mm-hmm. Or I, I know I, in the book I bring out um, his lofty, high Christology poem in uh, Colossians chapter two, is it? Yeah, or one? Colossians one. Colossians and, one, uh, fifteen through twenty. So, so yeah, I guess what yeah. I'm saying is, theopoetics is nothing new. Hmm. It it may seem a little bit because we live in an age that's very fast. Not to, fast. That's not the right word. We're just very devoted to prose, to just yeah. that kind of technical language. But the best part, I mean, what's the best part of the Old Testament? I don't know. Psalm twenty three. Okay, that's poetry. And so th- this is not a poetry book. I don't want to mislead people by any means, but I do take a more poetic approach yeah. to my attempt to talk about the cross. And a talk about the cross is exactly what this book is, of course. You're, yeah. you're approaching the cross from a, not a strictly theological breakdown, but instead, um, so I would say something richer, something deeper um, in a way that I've not seen before. Um, you said right in the beginning of the book, it might've been in the intro, you said the crucifixion means everything, everything that can be known about God Mm -hmm. is in some way present at the cross. I actually said that a few, a few different ways, a few times in the, in the opening chapters of the book. Can you, can you just help us unpack that a little bit in terms of like, how do we, how do we learn to contemplate the cross? If, if we can, if all that there is to, to really uh, understandable God can be somehow found in the cross. How do we learn to contemplate the cross in, in other than buying your book, which by the way, that would be a great <laughs> step one is buy the book. Um, but otherwise in terms of just daily practices or whatever, how can we learn to contemplate the depth of the meaning of the cross? Well, I think we need to slow down, mm. not be in a hurry and not make the terrible mistake of reducing the cross to a singular meaning. This is the bane of tidy little atonement theories. People want to be able to sum up the meaning of the cross in a sentence or two, and then they can say, here we go, done with it. Yeah. Uh, no, not at all. So I, I think we, we need to just stay with the cross, look upon it, contemplate it, meditate it. In fact, perhaps use images. I'm sitting here. This is this is my writing desk. This is where I also do zooms and all that sort of thing. But 
it's before it was that is my writing desk and i have and i mentioned this in the book but i have this cross this uh this is a russian orthodox crucifix icon and it sits right here it presides over all of my writing every book i've written i'm working on my 12th one right now has been written under the watchful eye of this icon hmm. and so I even, you know, I have even that image in front of me. I mean, not every book I've written has been directly on the cross, but that's still central. Um, but this one is entirely about that. Um, maybe, maybe it'd be helpful to tell the story I tell early in the book of how the book came to be. Yeah, and it goes back to um, our first. Camino, the Camino de Santiago. Yeah, I was eager to talk miles. to you about this because, of course, actually, uh, regular listeners of the podcast would have uh, actually got to know a little bit about uh, your journey uh, through yeah. our interview with your wife, Perry, just a few weeks ago. Oh, that's so, right. That's right. Um, so I I was hoping you would kind of tease this out a little bit. So, sorry, go on. Yeah, and Perry's upstairs right now doing another podcast. So we're, 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 <laughs> Brilliant. We're, you know, we just sit around and do podcasts all day long. <laughs> so our first one, our first Camino de Santiago, 500-mile walk across Spain, began by happy accident on Holy Cross Day, which is September 14th, in 2016. And and if the first day is a hard day because you you, start, you actually start in France, in Saint-Jean-Pierre-de-Port, France, cross the Pyrenees. It's like 15 miles and you're crossing mm. mountains. It's a long, hard day. Yeah. And... There's only one place to stay. You you arrive and because you're you're in the mountains. There's you know it isn't like there's towns and villages, and there is a monastery, a very large monastery in Roncesvalles, and it's where all the pilgrims stay. You kind of have to stay there. And after we'd gotten settled in, I went into their chapel, and I'm just sitting there. You know, I'm beginning this this thing. I've never done this before. It's the first day, and I'm sitting in their chapel, and I'm just looking at the crucifix they have in there, and I felt like. The Holy Spirit gave me some instructions that on this Camino, I was to enter every church I could, pay attention to the crucifix, ask this question, what does this mean? And don't be too quick to give an answer. And so I did for the next 40 days. And because we're on the move, I'm not seeing the same one. I'm seeing a different one every time. So, I mean, multiple times, because, you know, it's just, there's all kinds of churches and chapels along the way. So I'm seeing many crucifixes every day, and they're all different. You know, so they're, they're one-off productions. I mean, some are regal, some accentuate the horror, some accentuate beauty, some, you know, Christ is still alive, others Christ is in death. They're, they're, they're all different. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm doing what the Spirit says. I'm just I'm looking at them, paying attention, and say, what does this mean? And then I, I resist I to give an to answer. You about this. And, yeah, then, and, then, and then after 40 how, days. And how 40, do you slow down? Like, how that's so hard in this culture, in this day and age. And I appreciate it. you guys were already in a different space. And so maybe you're, that's the you're point. beginning to slow down. But like, it's so hard to not try to come up with an answer right away and then move on. That's the point. I mean, that's what it, that's what a real long walking pilgrimage will do. It just It just slows you down. I don't have dozens of things to do i have basically one thing to do every day you know we you know how we all have our google calendars and all that and it's it's when you're on the camino de santiago it's like every day it just says 
walk 12 to 15 miles west. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> you don't have any meetings. There's no Zooms. There's no podcasts. There's nothing. There's none of that. Yeah. And so everything does slow down and your life becomes kind of a blessed singularity. You're just doing one thing. But long walks give time for long contemplation. Mm. So, I mean, we, we, you know, Perry and I, we'd talk or we would walk in silence and we could, you know, your mind does what your mind does. But I did have a established theme that I would return to. What does it mean that Jesus of Nazareth was nailed to a cross. And and then and then not trying to, I mean, ideas and thoughts would would bubble up, but I wasn't trying to be done with it. I wasn't trying to, okay, now I got the answer. Next we can move on. No, I knew I was going to stay with it. And so several years after that experience, then I thought, okay, it's time for me to write about it because I've I've now put in, you know, some time with some serious contemplation. On the meaning of the crucifixion, now I'm ready to say some things about it. So that's 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 where the book comes from. You were you were in a wide variety of churches, and you mentioned it, the crucifix looked different in each church. Uh, but the Protestant church, primarily that I've seen here in North America, at least the cross is always empty. Yeah. Um, and when I step into a Catholic church, for instance, we've got a lot of Catholic churches here in New Mexico and, and many very beautiful cathedrals and yeah. stuff. And when I walk into those churches, Christ is on the cross. Um, why do you think the, the Protestant church has opted to go with a, an empty cross versus the crucified Christ being depicted in that, in that icon or why exactly? Uh, I, I think, Probably it had largely to do with the general Protestant disposition in the 16th century that the statuary in Catholic churches verged on idolatry, and so they're getting rid of all kinds of images, and then they just took it to the nth degree and said, okay, we won't even have a crucifix, although although I don't think that was a move that Luther was making. But mm. as time goes on, it becomes... Protestant worship spaces become more and more austere and more spare. Um, I'm not here to, you know, I, I describe myself as a Protestant by default, but I'm not protesting anything. I just, yeah. <laughs> I just am. And so because I am a Protestant by default, that's how I grew up and where I've been, I wasn't, I mean, by the, by the time I was walking the, the first Camino in the 57th year of my life, I was, I'd been around plenty of crucifixes, I suppose. But still, still, I hadn't been around them like that, where it's like every day, every day, every day. Yeah. And I have to, I have to say, I'm, I'm not wanting to, you know, contend or anything like that, but I like a crucifix. Mm. Um, okay, you know, a, a cross, an empty cross is, e you know, I anybody can make that little symbol. It's easy. I get that. That's fine. I'm not, I'm not against that. But I'm just saying that it's too easy to turn that into an abstract symbol, almost like a mathematical equation or something, which I think is a very bad way to approach the cross. Um, I, I want to keep it storied. So if you just see if you see an empty cross, what you're seeing is a geometric symbol. If you see a crucifix, you're seeing a story, and you're going, "Oh man, they're they're." Even even if you don't know what's even if you didn't know anything, you go, well, this means something. 
can, can I, I want to reference if you don't mind. I would like <laughs> to reference. Do. Yeah, I know where you're going. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so 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 this book has um 16 art images in it. But there is an image I described early on in the book that that's not in the book. It's not in the book for two reasons. One, I couldn't find who the cartoonist was, and the other was I don't know if I could have got away with it. Yeah. Although maybe I could, because it's I described in the book. But I saw a cartoon where a flying saucer has landed. Two aliens have got out of their flying saucer. The cockpit thing is kind of still open. They're standing by a life-size crucifix. The kind that you would find on roadways in Spain. And so aliens from another planet landed, flying saucer. The first thing they encounter on this planet is a crucifix. They're looking at it. One alien says to the other, you know what we need to do? We need to get the F out of here. That's what we need to do. <laughs> and I think, I think, you know, I know somebody that, that might, you know, feel like it verges on blasphemy. I don't think so. I think it actually is, is a brilliant commentary to wake us up, to wake us yeah. up, because we can become so accustomed to the crucifixion that we don't give it a second thought, oh, yeah, it's a crucifixion. But no, this is something that should shock us, yeah. that the most depicted image in art in human history is a naked man nailed to a tree. That's got to mean something. And so our our little alien friends here have concluded I don't think this is a safe place. And you know what? <laughs> They're not wrong. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. So, so the first thing I would like to do in getting people to reapproach the cross is to restore some of the scandal of it. That the idea that the first Christians worshiping a crucified God, a crucified Messiah. That, that was that's nuts. I mean, you would give that zero chance of taking off in, you know, the milieu of the first century world. I mean, a victorious God, a triumphant God, a God riding a chariot, yeah, a crucified God. The only way that that, uh, that, that became a movement of faith is because somehow it must have had power and was changing people's lives. Otherwise, it, it's like the most absurd. Oh, this, is, this is like crass. It's like the most absurd marketing strategy ever. <laughs> that, that, that at the center of our religion, our God is crucified. I'm, I'm, I tell you, the ancient world, and Paul acknowledges that. He says, to the Jews, that's a stumbling block. That's a scandal. And to the Gentiles, that's just nuts. That's foolish. That's just crazy stuff right there. But for those who believe, it's the power of God unto salvation. Mm. It's beautiful. Um, where does the the crucifix and and the icons um, fall into the the scripture? The Old Testament scripture says, "Hey, you you shouldn't make an image." Uh, and now here we are. All you said it's the most uh, reproduced image or whatever in in history, basically. Where where does that fall in line? Are we breaking God's law by by making a crucifix? Yeah, that's a, that's a that's a fantastic question that has a long historical answer to it. Um, first of all, let me. Well, I don't know where I want to go with this. So, so very early on, immediately, Christians 
depicted Jesus in various ways, usually as a shepherd, mm -hmm. often with a sheep across his shoulders that he's carrying, uh, or sometimes as, as healing. Uh, one of my favorite ones is sometimes he's he's depicted with a with a wand, <laughs> because you know it's signifying his miracles. Jesus wasn't depicted as crucified. They talked about the cross. They had hymns about the cross. They made the sign of the cross even in the first century. Oh. They didn't depict the crucifixion of Jesus until crucifixion had been banned in the Roman Empire in the fourth century because or the fifth century because it was still just too. Ah, provocative. Hmm. Um, but as far as the depicting divine, okay, here's here's the history. In the eighth century, there was a movement known as the iconoclasts, which actually means icon smashers. And Christians had decided there was a you know movement of Christians who had decided that images of Christ and these icons was a violation of the second commandment to make no image of the divine. Uh, and so the Seventh Ecumenical Council in 787 was convened. This is when there was just only one church, just, just one church in the world. And so it's a truly ecumenical, it's the whole church. And they said, we're going to settle this. And this is basically what they decided, that the original command in the Decalogue there, the second commandment, no images of the divine, is a wise prohibition and a concession to humility, because if humans depict the divine, they're going to get it wrong, mm. and thus they've created not an image but an idol. So far, so good. But all of that changes when God himself becomes the iconographer and writes the icon in perfection in the Word made flesh. And so at last, now we know who God is because he's perfectly revealed in Jesus. And the church then said, and now we are free to depict Christ and the things that surround devotion to Christ. And so I like icons. And the church has said, no, this is not a violation of the second commandment because God has given us a perfect image in Christ so that being disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death, Christ upon the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. Which again sounds like folly uh, until you've gained yeah. <laughs> gained the revelation. That's right. Uh, you actually brought up Mel Gibson in your book, and I want to talk about it a little bit because you you talked about the Passion of the Christ, and yeah, uh, Mel Gibson actually put into Jesus' mouth in in his film, The Passion of the Christ, uh, as you point out, an, an anachronistic quote. He's quoting Revelation about, "Behold, I'm making all things new," um, and you give Mel Gibson a pass here because you believe the cross is actually the point from which the world is made new. Mm -hmm. uh, that that the that's actually where this new beginning starts, I suppose. Uh, how are we under to understand the cross in light of Christ's mission to restore all things? What what role does the cross play in that? Oh wow! Well, uh, not what the the answer will not be one thing, um, but one way of talking. Just one way. This book has nineteen chapters and kind of a long poem at the end. Um. So I I have 20 approaches. In the in the beginning of the book, I talk about it being a kaleidoscopic 
examination of it, you know, how a kaleidoscope works. You look through it, you see it, you see one image, one design, and then you turn it and then it changes. And so that's what I'm doing. And I'm not saying there are 20. I think, you know, it's probably endless, <laughs> yeah. but but there are at least 20 that I'm going to talk about. So how does Christ change the world through his cross? Well, there's lots of ways. I'll pick one. Uh, one of the most interesting characters in human history is the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. This is why he's attracted so much interest from artists, from novelists, and also painters, because just just the he is the one that's going to judge Christ, and he's the one that condemns him to death and then tries to wash his hands of it. You just, it's you know, and and he shows up in the creed for crying out loud. I mean, I understand yeah. Jesus, and the, there's there's three people mentioned. In the creed, Jesus, Mary, and Pontius Pilate. Well, Jesus and Mary make sense. Pontius Pilate sneaks in like a rogue. <laughs> I mean, it gives us historic context is why that's there, I suppose. But it captures our imagination. And so there's this moment. Jesus has been condemned by the religious court of the Sanhedrin of blasphemy. But they don't have authority to carry out um, you know, an execution, a legal execution. And so that they don't want this to be a mob violence execution. They want it to have legal authority. And so they have to go to Pilate and uh, rouse him out of bed early on the morning and, and, and get him to pass judgment. Well, Pilate is not interested in any kind of arcane religious debates. He doesn't care about that. He cares about one thing. Does this guy claim to be a king? Because that's what all these, you know, Jesus wasn't the first person nor the last to claim to be Messiah. And they all end up crucified because this is what Rome does. Rome says, look, the kings are who we say they are. Mm -hmm. Kings are appointed by the emperor in Rome. Tiberius will tell you who the king is, and he says it's Herod. And if this guy is claiming to be a king on his own merit, then he is an insurrectionist, he's a rebel. He's committing treason, and he will be crucified. So Pilate just cuts to the chase. He doesn't want to have a long theological discussion. He says, are you king? Are you, are you king? Jesus said, you say I'm a king. But then Jesus clarifies. He says, but my kingdom is not from this world. It's for this world, but it's not from this world. In other words, Jesus' kingship does not come about the same way that kingship is understood by Caesar and Pharaoh, and all of the rest. And so Pilate reiterates, so you're a king. He says, for this purpose I came into the world, that I might bear witness to the truth. Whoever hears my voice, whoever, whoever is inclined towards the truth, listens to my voice. And then Pilate famously says, everybody knows what he says. Ah, what is truth? Kind of like a cynical politician. Yeah, what is truth? And then there's a break. Jesus is taken away and scourged. He's brought back. This is the famous behold the man, a.k.a. homo moment. And Pilate resumes his interrogation, but now Jesus doesn't respond. He has nothing more to say to him. And Pilate is frustrated, and he says, don't you know that I have power to release you, and I have power to kill you? Oh. Right there, that's the moment that Pilate answers his own question. 
What is truth? Pilate's going to say this. The truth is that the world is run by those who have the most power to kill. Mm. And the sooner you recognize that, you dreamy prophet from Galilee, uh, the better. If you can acknowledge that and submit to it, I can probably let you go. If you don't, then it's going to be to the cross you go. And because Pilate believes the truth is that the world is just founded and organized around an axis of power enforced by violence. And he can he can point back to a long history and say that's the way. That, but Jesus is saying all of that is a lie. That is not God's intention. That's not the telos of the human being. That is not how the world is to be arranged. And so at the cross, Jesus does nothing less than refound the world. Instead of being organized around an axis of power enforced by violence, Jesus refounds the world to be organized around an axis of love expressed in forgiveness. Mm. And then, but, but, no, but this is not forced on anyone. We have to be drawn into that orbit by grace, by the, by the tractor beam of grace. We can resist. But if we will surrender and be drawn into that, we will find that we belong already in the world to come. And so this is um, this is just one way of 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 the cross changing the world, saving the world. Jesus, it's interesting in um, when Jesus gives any when Jesus gives meaning to his death. You know, Jesus is regularly from at least about the midpoint of his ministry on telling people, more the inner circle, that he's going to go to Jerusalem, be rejected, be condemned, be crucified, and be raised on the third day. But when he publicly says so, and this is in John chapter 12, during that final week, um, he says, if I, even I, am lifted up, this, this was a euphemism for crucifixion, lifted up. But then John comments, this was to indicate what manner of death he would die. Mm-hmm. Crucifixion was so horrible that the, the very word itself was considered profane. Like, oh, don't say that word. Mm-hmm. And so he uses the euphemism, if I am lifted up, I will draw all people unto myself. I love that. Yeah. And what's interesting is that Greek word there is the word that in other places is translated drag. <laughs> So, for example, when two examples, when uh, when Peter drags the net filled with the fish mm-hmm. up onto the shore, that's the word. Or when Paul and was it Silas are they were they dragged them before the magistrates. Uh, that's that word. And and Jesus says there's there's some sort of I don't know, I call it the tractor beam of grace, for lack of a better term, <laughs> that, that emanates from the cross over time and maybe over a very long time, okay, that that eventually will succeed in dragging all people unto himself. Wow, I love that. That's beautiful. The tractor beam of grace. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, Brian, I'm going to pause for a station break here, but when we come back, I want to talk um, I want to talk about war. Uh, you mentioned mm-hmm. uh, the violence of the kingdoms of this world. Right. So I want to talk about what the cross has to say about that. Uh, and I want to talk about capital punishment, actually, because you touch on that as well. Um, uh, but just before we jump into those things, I just want to remind our listeners uh, what Impact Nations is all about. We are about rescuing lives. We believe that uh, Jesus did indeed begin a, a mission 
mission uh, on the cross, uh, beginning with his death and resurrection to restore all things and uh, has invited us as his followers to participate in that. And at Impact Nations, we uh, believe we are uniquely called to do that in the nations, uh, in the developing world. And so we go uh, to nations in Africa and Asia where uh, communities are suffering cyclical poverty, but also uh, just horrific abuse and vulnerability. We're rescuing people from uh, forced prostitution, human trafficking, slavery, homelessness, teen pregnancy, all these things. We're rescuing people. We're getting them into a situation where they will receive comfort and care, uh, mentorship, coaching, uh, training so that they can become self-sustained and flourish long term and we're we're literally seeing generations change so uh we can't do it alone we have a global family all over the world that is giving generously to help us get the job done uh and so we'd love to have you join us with that uh, if you want to head to impactnations.com monthly you can learn what it means to be a monthly giver and uh, that just helps us to say yes to opportunities again and again and again to rescue lives to help people find the dignity that they were created for for them to discover that they were made in the image of god they carry his image uh, they 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 carry his presence and they just don't know it yet. Uh, and so uh, we would love for you to participate with us. Just head to impactnations.com slash monthly to learn more about how you can become a monthly giver. And uh, join us as we rescue lives. We're having a blast. Um, <clears throat> yeah, Impact Brian, Nations is doing great work. Great work. I, hurrah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. And we're having fun doing it. I got to tell you, it yeah. is so much fun. To, you know, we we hear these stories of rescue. I, I get to be on the phone with with our partners and stuff all the time. Uh, just was talking to Jordan this morning. She's our project manager. We're uh, now working on on plans to build a new dormitory. You know, uh, Brian, I don't know if you know, we we uh, big part of what we do is rescuing children from slavery in yeah, the I, factories I in that, India. Yeah. And uh, what uh, what we've learned about recently is that there are young women, and I mean like teenage girls, you know, age 15 or so, who are routinely being attacked uh, very violently uh, at night as they return from work, uh, working in the brick factory, uh, to share dormitories. They actually share dorms uh, uh, co-ed, and uh, it is an unpoliced area. It is terribly unsafe, and so we are in the process right now of uh, creating a plan to build a whole new dormitory just for these young women so they will have a safe place with like walled compound basically so before the sun goes down they can get into safety uh, and then actually we're going to start a sewing school right there so that they can start to get some practical skills so that they can get out of slavery and into the marketplace so anyway that's just sorry i digress Amen. but God that's bless uh, one thing i was meeting about uh, just this morning so that's pretty cool um what what does the cross have to say about war um you know, Isaiah said it was, uh, he hinted at it was going to be the end of war. And and yet, 2,000 years later, uh, we've still got war all over the planet. Uh, what was Isaiah getting at? And are we ever going to see an end to war? My chapter on that is entitled War is Over If You Want It, which is, of course, John Lennon. Um, look, um, it's interesting. I Christ establishes his kingdom which shall endure forever. The kingdoms of this world rise and fall, rise and fall, rise and fall, but there is a kingdom that endures forever. The kingdom of our the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ and he shall reign forever. Well, that kingdom is established at the cross. One of the things you need to remember is that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is in fact the real and true coronation of the world's true emperor. Now, the uh you know, the procession is to carry his cross through town. 
the crown is made of thorns. His, his scepter is a reed, and his throne is the cross. But it really is the true coronation. That's, remember when they're on their way to Jerusalem, and James and John say, hey, Jesus, do us a favor. We want to sit at your right and left in your glory. And Jesus says, yeah, you don't know what you're asking. Are you, are you able to drink the cup and all of that? Oh, yeah, we're able. He says, well, yeah, you will drink that cup, but to sit at my right hand is not for me to decide. It's for whom it's prepared by my Father. Well, who were with Jesus at his right and his left as he enters his glory, which is his crucifixion? It was the two thieves that were crucified with him. That's why Jesus says to James and John, you don't know what you're asking because you're, you think you're, you're thinking in terms of conventional glory. You're actually asking to be crucified with me. And so this is how the kingdom of God enters the world. And Christ always reigns from the cross. It is his true throne. And it's the place where therefore war is abolished. We do not advance the kingdom of God by the sword but by the cross, not by killing, but by co-suffering love. And again, I want to stress to, to people that are hearing this, that this is not some, this is not a new liberal take on it. This is what I'm going to, I'm going to read a little bit yeah. from my book. From my book. I'm going to read not my words, but the words of the church fathers. You know, the church fathers, these were, you know, these are our earliest theologians. And this is this is not just typical. This is pretty much universal up until at the time of Constantine. So for the first 300 years of the church, this is what they said about war, things like this. Um, this first one comes from Justin Martyr, 100 to 165, so very early Christian. We ourselves were well conversant with war, murder, and everything evil, but all of us throughout the whole wide earth have traded in our weapons of war. We have exchanged our swords for plowshares and our spears for farm tools. Now we cultivate the fear of God, justice, kindness, faith, and the expectation of the future given through the crucified one. Mm. Mm. Then uh, Clement of Alexander, 150 to 214, he says, um, Above all, Christians are not allowed to correct by violence sinful wrongdoings. Irenaeus, 130-202, Christians have changed their swords and lances into instruments of peace, and they know not how to fight. Tertullian, 160-220, only without the sword can a Christian wage war. The Lord has abolished the sword. Uh, Origen, 185-254, you cannot demand military service of Christians any more than you can of priests. We do not go forth as soldiers with the emperor, even if he demands this. We have become sons of peace for the sake of Jesus, who is our leader. One more, uh, Martin of Tours, 315-397, I am a soldier of Christ. It is not possible for me to fight. And Martin of Tours had been a Roman soldier. Hmm. And so the, the idea was... Well, let me, let me say a couple of things. First of all, the early church uh, would baptize soldiers. If you were in the Roman legions, you could be baptized because the you know the the army, the military, much like today in America, was was so vast that it touched every area of life, and they weren't only you know waging war; they were also the police. They're also building the infrastructure, engineers, construction, all that. So they said, you can be a soldier, and we will baptize you, provided you take a vow that you will not kill. 
even in combat. And so that's the stance of the early church because they said uh, that the prophecy of Isaiah, that when Messiah comes, they'll turn their, their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks, is fulfilled with Christ. And if the rest of the world doesn't get it, well, that's, that's, the, that's because that's the world. But the kingdom of Christ is kingdom come. And we're going, and the and the baptism, the baptistry is a time machine that thrusts us forward into the future, into the age to come. And so we're going to live as if Jesus is Lord even now. Because guess what? Jesus is Lord even now. And so if the rest of the world is anachronistic, holding on to the condemned ways of war, well, that's because that's the world. But the church is the church and it's different. And so they they didn't do the little hermeneutical dodge that you see so much done today that, well, yeah, someday we'll turn our swords to plowshares, our spears to pruning hooks when Jesus comes back a second time. Yeah. Oh, so the, in the early church, they would not have understood that. They would have said, what are you talking about? Yeah. Jesus has come. We're not waiting. He doesn't have to come twice for us to follow him. No, we follow him now. Yeah. Of course, all of that changed when you end up with a Christian emperor in Constantine and Christianity is invited to become the state religion of the Roman Empire, and now everything gets very confused. And uh, so what happens is, because you can't really as forcefully declare Jesus is Lord once you have a Christian emperor. And so, but you can't get rid of Jesus either. So Jesus is, as it were, demoted from Lord, which was a political term, to Secretary of Afterlife Affairs. <laughs> Jesus' role now is to get us into heaven when we die, but we're going to let Caesar run the world, and we're going to we're going to participate with Caesar in running the world. And this, you see this, you see how this goes wrong from the very beginning. Because the story that's told about Caesar and about Constantine, and I don't think it's any more than a hagiography. I, I, I just don't put any stock in it. Eusebius tells us this story, this kind of this court cleric. And he says that um, on the eve of the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, which there was a civil war going on about who was going to be the next emperor, that... Constantine had a vision, and he saw the cross in the heavens with these words, in this sign you shall conquer. Of course, conquer is a euphemism for kill. And um, he is victorious in the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, becomes, and he, he, put, he put the sign of the cross on their weapons of war, and he's victorious, and, and then the church is headed down this road. Um, so, so in that moment, effectively, what Constantine does is transform the cross into a sword. And then it reaches, in one sense, it reaches its apex with the Crusades, you know, beginning there in, what, the 12th century. Uh, but on the other hand, maybe you think it, it reaches its, I don't know, it, it, it eventually reaches the 20th century. Well, think about this. Think about this. In, in the name of allegiance to state, millions of Christians kill one another. I mean, the, Euro- the, the, the wars in Europe, the two great world wars in Europe in the 20th century, were waged by baptized people. You know, Christians killing Christians in the name of allegiance to state. So that's how, that's, that's how wrong this can go. 
And we need to listen, well, to Jesus, but maybe also listen to the early Christians interpret the words of Jesus, and they, to a man, to a woman, would confess that Jesus Christ at the cross abolished war. Yeah. At least for Christian participation in it. It it doesn't take long for the mind to jump to Hitler. You brought up the European theater mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> because it is a problem, right? Like, it, it, uh, no, it is you, a problem. It is like, a problem. We it, because if we're all going to be um, pacifists, if you will, or or even right. engage in as MLK talked about, you know, nonviolent resistance or what have you, uh, at some point, like, what is our role? Uh, in stopping evil, because I think that that's usually or right. very often the justification uh, for what might be underlying motives that are not nearly as pure as that. Uh, but the, there was certainly evil to be stopped in, in the 1930s and 40s. What? How do we do that? Well, here's what I say. That's a complicated question, a legitimate question. We need to have that conversation, but first, but first. First, before we have that conversation, we have to ask the very troubling question, how was it that Adolf Hitler was able to wage his blitzkrieg with baptized soldiers? Um, If the church had retained its pre-Constantine position on war, Hitler wouldn't have had any soldiers to wage his war with. We'd reached the point where where people in 1930s Germany, Christians, could attend a Nazi rally on Saturday night, a church service on Sunday morning, and not feel any contradiction. And these soldiers could go into, they can invade Poland or France with gut mentons, God with us, on their belt buckle. And so we're already neck deep into the problem. And then we say, what do we do now? Well, that's that's a problem, and I don't have an easy answer. Maybe we're called to follow the example of Franz Jägerstatter, whose story I tell in the book. This Austrian farmer who, when forced to take a vow to serve Hitler, said, I won't do it, and was martyred because of it. And that story is told in Terrence Malick's beautiful, gorgeous powerful film, A Hidden Life. I'm telling people, I'm like an evangelist for A Hidden Life. If you haven't seen this movie, watch it. It's so, it's 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 one of the most powerful Christian films I've ever seen in my life. And I, I did a interview with Father John Deere, who knew the family. I mean, he didn't know Franz Jager's daughter, but he knew his wife and his uh, daughters. His daughters are still alive. His wife, oh, I think, died as recently as 2017. She lived to be quite old. And they said, no, he told me, he said, no, this was a, he was a consultant for the film. He said, it's a faithful reproduction of this gorgeous story. So, and the other thing I would say is not every war is World War II. Yeah. And that, that, that haunts us. And, and we, especially as Americans, want to pretend that every time America takes up arms on foreign soil, it's as clear cut as, you know, D-Day in 1944. That, that we want to draw just a, a complete line of equivalence between D-Day 1944 and the invasion of Iraq in 2004. And yeah. it, it's, it's not that simple. All right, that's war. Let's talk capital punishment. Because yeah. uh, you, you also talk about that in your book in terms of what, like, what, what can we learn? I, um, America 
uh, is a nation that has, depending on what state you're in, they, they are yeah. uh, executing prisoners, um, which is effectively what happened to our Lord and Savior. What can we learn about yeah. capital punishment and what our attitudes about it should be from the cross? The cross is the scene of the greatest injustice in the cosmos, in all of time. It, in fact, is the condemnation of God himself and the execution of God. It's, it's the crime of deicide, the murder of God, the, the unjust execution of God. Yes, it's done with illegal auspices. It's done, you know, from the marbled hall of justice and from the, you know, gilded sanctuary of religion, but it's unjust. And if the greatest crime, if, if capital punishment can go so wrong that it condemns the innocent one to death, maybe we ought not meddle in that kind of activity. And again, this, this was the position of the early church. The, the early church was absolutely opposed to capital punishment. They weren't opposed to punishment. They understood that violent criminals need to be segregated from society. They understood all that. And they understood there's a role for punishment that, that, tends, that, that, that the hope will be some sort of rehabilitation. Uh, the execution of a criminal doesn't rehabilitate anybody. I mean, it's you've, you've ended the game. You've, you've stopped it. And so, again, the early church was against it. And by the way, most of the church today is too. It's America that's the outlier. Uh, essentially, capital punishment is practiced globally by three kinds of states. Totalitarian states, Islamic states, and the United States. Um we're the only country that has a Christian heritage that continues to practice this at any kind of significant level. Uh, the rest of the world is long since done with that. And uh, I, I think part of the problem we have in America is that in the American consciousness, justice equals punishment. And we shouldn't think that way. Justice is rectifying that which is wrong. It's setting right that which is wrong. And you can't set murder right by murder. You can't set killing right by killing. And so the cross stands as a condemnation for how horribly wrong capital punishment can go. And of course, now we've reached the point here in the United States where every month or so, through DNA testing, because we've advanced in that, we're discovering that there's all kinds of people that are on death row who, in fact, are innocent. Yeah. And are being exonerated and released. Oops, sorry about that. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, it, it's terrible enough to imprison yeah. someone for however long, years, decades, uh, for a crime they didn't commit, but then to execute them because there's, there's no possibility of setting that wrong right. And so um, I in the book, I talk about this. I, I, I'm gonna, I won't say the name here, but a, a well-known Christian ethicist, actually, um, from a kind of a conservative world, was asked to write an opinion piece for CNN on why Christians should port, support capital punishment. I mean, that was the name of the article, Why Christians Should Support Capital Punishment, in which he never once cited Jesus. <laughs> mm. He quoted Moses, mm. but he didn't quote Jesus. Yeah. 
you know, if you're a Christian theologian and you are addressing the subject of capital punishment, I think you might want to consult Jesus on it, what Jesus has to say about it. And when Jesus was confronted with a capital murder, not a murder, but a, but a, a death penalty case, he said, all right, let the one without, without uh, sin cast the first lethal stone. Let, let, the, let the one without sin flip the switch on the electric chair. Let the one without sin inject uh, the lethal poison. Again, I'm not saying that, that we don't have a criminal justice system and prisons and punishment, all that. I'm just saying the church has said from the beginning that capital punishment uh, is not compatible with Christian ethics. And by the way, the current—well, Pope John Paul II said that, and, was, and, and Pope Benedict said the same thing, and Pope Francis has just come right out now and said to— you know, the world of a billion Catholics, that uh, capital punishment is unacceptable in Catholic thought. And so I wish I wish American evangelicals could catch up in that department. Uh, can we talk about discipleship for a minute? You know, Jesus mm-hmm. said, hey, if you want to follow me, take up your cross. And he said that prior to going to the cross, obviously, that's Mark 8. But w- what is what did that mean, and how should we understand discipleship in light of the work of the cross? You know, I, again, this is a case where, after two thousand years, something that should be jolting has become cliche, and we don't really hear it. You know, take up your cross and follow me, and then our mind kind of drifts into religious themes. When Jesus made the criteria for discipleship to take up your cross. I mean, I'm telling you that that must have that was among the most shocking things that Jesus could have said. Yeah, um, because the cross was not at this point understood as a religious emblem; it was purely a means of Roman execution designed to be horrific to terrorize an occupied people, and so implicit in that is the possibility of martyrdom. And you know, you wonder how how did how did he gain a following with that kind of invitation? Uh, well, it's because he is the Son of God. He he is the one that saves and forgives and heals, and they saw that, and so they're willing to follow him. I think no one has said it better or more succinctly than Diedrich Bonhoeffer when he says in his famous book, The Cost of Discipleship, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And so I think most of us that have been at all serious about following Jesus have come to realize that in that process of following Jesus, there's things that we must die to. Now, for most of us, for the vast majority of us living, of course, here in this part of the world and at this time, um, the prospect of actual martyrdom is quite remote. But this is a, this is a long this, we have a long, rich history. Of martyrdom, if you're considering the whole church, both in time and place. And I worry that in the American context, martyrdom is not esteemed and almost viewed as something shameful, that it's not on the table. Well, we, we're certainly not going to, we're not going to be martyred. We will kill before we will be killed. Right? 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 Well, this is this is not the way of Christian discipleship. That's why Jesus said, "Take up your cross," because if they want to kill you, 
for being faithful to me, you can say, yeah, I brought the cross with me. <laughs> Here you go. Yeah. Uh, and, and there is this, the martyrs had this amazing liberty. I mean, if you can reach the point by the grace of God where they say to you, if you remain faithful to this Jesus, whom you call Christ, we will kill you. And you are able by the grace of God to say, yeah, and then what? <laughs> if that's all you can do. Well, well, you see how free you are. And so, in, in especially in Protestant churches in America, when was the last time you heard the story of a martyr? Whether it's, you know, the, the martyrs of the first 300 years or scattered throughout history. And again, that's why I think... I think the story of Jan's Franz Jägerstadter is important. Of course, uh, people do kind of know the story of Diedrich Bonhoeffer, but they need to hear it. Um, I mean, it's it's really interesting that that when he writes, uh, look, he wrote the Cost of Discipleship, his most famous work in 1930s Germany, and what he's aiming at is he sees that there are Christians who are enamored with Hitler and Nazi philosophy. And they are then at church on Sunday morning, and they're not troubled by it. They don't see any contradiction. And that's why he he launches his attack upon what he calls cheap grace. And he said, you know, the cross isn't just about how your sins are forgiven. The cross is also about how you obey and follow Christ. So that, so that Christ with the cross is not something we merely stand on the sidelines and go, Way to go, Jesus. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, Jesus then looks at us and says, follow me. Take up your own cross and follow me. And so I wish that we would have, and I'm, I'm, I'm maybe going to do this. I haven't done this. I, I've, did, I've done it a few times, but I would like to just to have in our own church some of the stories of, of the, the saints and martyrs and how they suffered and how they were willing to suffer. Mm. Um, I, I, think that's, I think that's good because that's sort of the... You have this idea that that Christianity needs to be, uh, I don't know, kind of macho, tough, masculine. I say, all right, you want you want some tough, you want some tough. I'll tell you about I'll tell you about the women who were martyrs. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you about some. I'll tell you some of the stories about the women that went without fear into the arena to face the wild beasts. Tough guy. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hear those stories. <laughs> yeah. That sounds good. I'd watch that series. Yeah. <laughs> Final question. Uh, where did we get the idea? Jesus died on the cross and defeated death is, is one of the things yes. that he accomplished on the cross. So if he defeated death, where did we get the idea that this, our life on earth is our only opportunity to repent, to turn to Christ? Um, where did that concept come from? Is it biblical or no, it's certainly not biblical. Um, I think it's rooted in um, relatively modern revivalism, evangelism. I think I think that's basically where it comes from. Um, again, the chapter that deals the most with—I I guess I deal with that in several chapters—that that if you want to maybe say. The greatest accomplishment of the cross. I'm kind of hesitant to do that. I want to get into ranking things, but uh, it's through death that Christ conquers death. And this this was the early church didn't 
think in terms of atonement theory, sort of just an abstract formula to describe the cross. But if they had something like that, I, I will say they're mo- they're, the most common way of talking about the cross is that it was a ransom. But it wasn't a ransom paid to God, because God wasn't the one that was holding people captive. It was paid to, they would say, either death, or more often the devil as you know, as sort of representing death but but there but there's more going on it was a it was a ransom that the devil should never have accepted because once the devil took the ransom Jesus I give my life as a ransom into death what happened was is it ends up destroying death from the inside out the Orthodox hymn, Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tombs bestowing life. And so we have all of these sermons and hymns of the early church about how Christ goes into death, but not, not as a captive, but as a conqueror, and empties it out, and empties it out. He, I mean, and, and this, is, this is Paul's language about, you know, he takes captivity captive. That that cry that he who ascended also first descended, that he might take that which was the captives of death, which is all of humanity, and make them his captives and lead them out. So, so they they were fond of speaking of it as a trick played on the devil because Jesus, because of his humanity, he was mortal and he could die, but death could not digest divinity, and then. And then I, 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 I do this in the book, so I'm going to do it now. Um, I said, well, I can show you all the hymns and some of the sermons from people like Chrysostom and other you know, early Christian preachers, how they talk this. But here's, here's how I like to do it. <laughs> and I use, I use the movie Men in Black, the, the original, the first one. Men in Black with, with uh, Tommy Lee Jones and, uh, and Will, Will, Smith. Yeah. Will Smith. And remember the climactic moment. There's this this bug, they call it a galactic cockroach. Well, <laughs> 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 a bug in town won't keep her eyes on the morgue. And uh, there's that moment when Tommy Lee Jones—I can't remember who's J and K, but anyway, uh, Agent whatever, Agent Tommy Lee Jones says, "Eat me, eat me." He's taunting that bug, "Eat me!" And the in a giant hideous gulp that galactic cockroach <laughs> swallows Tommy Lee Jones, and we think it's the end of Tommy Lee Jones. No. He's gone down into death, but there he retrieves his weapon and destroys the monster from the inside out. That's exactly what happened. That yeah. death swallowed Jesus and thought that it had prevailed, but no. Death is now destroyed from the inside out. Hallelujah. <laughs> What a beautiful picture, galactic cockroach. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the early church fathers would have liked that when they were gone. Yeah, yeah that's, cool. I like that. <laughs> that's a good metaphor. So then, if because we believe that intellectually, at the very least, Christians, followers of Christ, believe that he he conquered death. And yet we don't seem to stop and ask ourselves why, you know, you, you said it, it perhaps is more a, out of strategic thinking for modern evangelism or something like, Hey, you got, you got to pray this prayer before you cack, you know, and you hear yeah. people and it, <clears throat> I have grace for it, but you know, you'll, you'll hear people talk about um, interacting with somebody on their deathbed and, Oh, he prayed the prayer just before he died sort of thing. Now I know where he's, where he's at. Where, where does that thinking come from? Again, I think it, it doesn't come from scripture. It doesn't come from the long tradition, theological tradition of the church. It's pretty modern. 
um, and Protestant. And I just, I don't think there's much scriptural warrant for it. I mean, someone will always, you know, say, yeah, Hebrews 9.27 says, it's appointed that each man die once and after this the judgment. To which I say, yeah, then what? Yeah, then what? <laughs> yes, of course. Yes, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Mm-hmm. And then what? Yeah. You know, uh, what happens after the judge? I, I just reject the idea that the grace of God is limited by time. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I want to be careful about speculating too authoritatively on, on what happens after death. I know there's the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, but I, I just don't believe that someone is going to, in genuine repentance, this is after death, at some point in the indeterminate future, after death, in in a form of repentance, acknowledging their sin, and cries out for mercy, and God says, "Yeah, too bad, too late, buddy." I just, I just, that is not the heart of God, and I think, I think part of, I'm, I'm thinking a little more clearly here. I think Tim, part of what went on was within the Catholic Church. As we move into the Renaissance period, um, you, 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 they have it all figured out, right? With with purgatory, and then their indulgences, and for a price, you can buy a vacation from purgatory for mom and <laughs> yep. dad. I mean, I'm not exaggerating. That's literally yeah. what was happening. Wow! And they saw this as so base, so craven, so corrupt. Uh, I mean, this is the thing that spurred Luther on. It was when John Tetzel comes to Wittenberg selling indulgences. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul in purgatory springs. And we had these clever little slogans because they're raising money for the construction of St. Peter's Basilica. And so they didn't like the idea of, of purgatory set up within the Catholic Church as it wasn't. So they just, they just wanted to have some sort of finality. Uh, I understand that impulse. And, and indeed, that whole thing needed to be reformed. Absolutely. But do I actually believe that there is some sort of purging that takes place at the judgment seat of Christ and beyond through which we can be saved? Well, this is what Paul says, you know, that we we pass through the fire. And wood, hay, stubble, gold, silver, precious stones, our lives are revealed for what they are. There's loss and gain, but in the end, there's salvation. Um, I think that's a, a healthier way. If if what we mean by purgatory is what Paul's talking about in First Corinthians three, yeah. Which which if you if you read some of the works of uh, Pope Benedict, that's exactly that he teaches purgatory in a way that I think a very careful Protestant would be fine with, because he he just works with First Corinthians three there. Hmm. So no, I I don't believe that Jesus has the keys of hell and death. Jesus. Not not death. I mean, Jesus has the keys of hell and death. And what does Jesus do with the keys? Well, I'm, we're talking about the Jesus we know, right? I mean, if, if, if a sinner is repentant and cries for mercy, does Jesus say, no, I've thrown away the keys. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, he has the keys. Well, 
And Brian, you've you've written another beautiful book, uh, both both literally and figuratively. Um, <laughs> but uh, I I would encourage our listeners grab a copy of this. It is out uh, now. Um, yeah, it's it's yeah. I don't know when yeah. this airs, but yeah, yeah, this will air. I think February eighth is my guess. So I, I think it comes out Feb sixth, right? So we're it's out. Um, and uh, grab a copy, enjoy it. I will tell you what, it blessed me. I I read the chapter uh, on John Coltrane, uh, if you can believe it folks uh and <clears throat> as soon as i was done that chapter brian i went for a walk i stuck in both airpods with yes. the spatial surround sound mm-hmm. the, the remastering of john coltrane's a love supreme album and i tell you what man that was that was the a best walk i've supreme. had in a while so yeah. a love supreme <laughs> a love supreme <laughs> <right>. yeah <laughs> it's fabulous and and your book inspired me to go do that so um thank you for that um <clears throat> the book is uh <clears throat> excuse me uh, the book is The Wood Between the Worlds. Where did where'd you get that title, by the way? I, uh, that's a C.S. Well, Lewis reference. I, I, I'm, that's C.S. Lewis, where it's the second chapter in The Magician's Nephew in the Chronicles of Narnia series, where the wood between the worlds is a place of portals that can there's these pools mm-hmm. and they take you to other worlds. And so I'm playing with that. I'm I'm taking it from C.S. Lewis, but I'm I'm making it not not the woods because that's how he actually used it the woods mm-hmm. between but the wood meaning the cross the cross between yeah. the world there is the world that was and the world to come and in between those two worlds is the cross upon which the son of god was hung well folks if you want to go deeper on your contemplation of the cross uh this book is a great place to start uh and uh and brian this has been a delight thank you so much for being with us today uh once again thank you for just the way you you cheer us on at impact nations that means a lot to us and um Hopefully we'll get to hang out soon. I, I know we've, we've got a trip to Israel scheduled for November and we're not sure what's going to happen yet. But uh, if folks, by the way, I know many of our listeners are are, uh, are registered for that or are hoping to register for that. Uh, at this point, we don't know what's going to happen. So stay tuned for emails from Perry and from Bill. Um, but uh, hopefully it's going to happen. And if not in November, then soon. But uh, looking forward to getting to spend time with you in that context as well. Um. Ladies and gentlemen, we are uh, on YouTube every Thursday. We release this, so be sure to subscribe. That's uh, YouTube at Impact Nations. Uh, subscribe, hit the bell. You'll get the notifications, not just of this show, but of all the cool videos that we uh, we put out all the time of amazing stories of rescue from around the world. Uh, or if you prefer the audio, uh, you're missing out on the visuals, by the way, because today you missed out on uh, the really cool icon that uh, we've got, that Brian's got looking over his uh, writing as he writes. Uh, and you missed out on the beautiful cover of his new book so i encourage you to check out the video but uh if you if you want to listen on your way to work or whatever you can do that on your favorite podcast app just look for the impact nations podcast uh and hey leave us a review five-star reviews always help uh, others discover this show as well uh which is how we get the word out on uh, the beautiful gospel and uh, the work of impact nations so uh, brian thank you so much for being with us this week god bless you <laughs>